It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's our pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. Uh, Megan Ak- Mig Wands is, uh, is here, and they are joining the Toronto uh, Art Museum at the University of Toronto uh, as a curator. And uh, congratulations to them on this uh, appointment. And also, um, they are an associate professor of Indigenous uh, Contemporary Art in Canada in the Department of Art History in the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. So, uh, Megan, welcome. Miigwech. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, for joining us, as I say. And I have to tell you right off the top, uh, mm-hmm. I've been interviewing a few people recently, all from uh, Wikwimikong. I can't stand yes. it. <laughs> I can't stand it because I, I love Wiki. I love it up in Manitoulin Island. It's a wonderful yes. place. Yep. Um, I'm actually from the Point Grandine side on the mainland, mm. but I'm, yep, yeah, my father is from Wikwimikong, from the island. I'm from, mm. I'm, uh, I spent many years there. Yeah, it's a, like I say, I, I love going there. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I love just taking the ferry ride to get there. It's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like. I uh, generally I drive all the way around. Oh, yeah. Day, swinging bridge or nothing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a long drive. But uh, I, I think I like the ferry because it kind of is like the precursor to getting to the island. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, it's true. Yeah, going by water. Yeah. It's, it's a good way to go. Yep. So, again, welcome to the show and congratulations on your appointment. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now, have you started this role at this point in time? Yes, I just began. I suppose the, the pandemic inter- mm. interrupted my start date a little bit. So I am working from home right now. Mm. But I, I got that cross appointment with the um, with the Department of Art History. And um, part of it, most of it will be um, as a professor in the Department of Art History at U of T. And about 25% of that job will be as a curator at the Art Museum. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really <laughs> yes. I'm looking forward to being able to combine teaching, research, and curating. Yeah, that's what I mean. It sounds like a, a really nice gig, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I, I, again, congratulations. But just a little bit more uh, about you. Um, you uh, they bring a diversity of cultural and academic experience to their role at the mm-hmm. museum. A multimedia artist by training, Igmans um, mm-hmm. has expanded their work to include research, teaching, curation, and community engagement. And as just as just mentioned, uh, they are from Wemikong, unceded First Nation Reserve up on Manitoulin Island. And you know, I like I like saying this, and sometimes the guests pointed out as well. It is the largest uh, uh-huh. freshwater island in the world. That's it's, right. It's yep. so cool. Also, so, the largest island on a lake on an island on a lake. <laughs> yes, that's world. right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. It's great. It just keeps going. It doesn't get. It keeps getting better and better with Manitoulin. Yeah, yeah. So, what what will you be doing with this role? Well, at the art museum in particular, I'm really interested in bringing um, indigenous presence to this place. I know we talk a lot about, especially in museum work, and I come from a museum's background. Um, we talk about decolonizing the museum. I find that's very non-specific, and it's a way sometimes for the institution to kind of to take on roles that Indigenous people should be doing. What it's about is, is bringing Indigenous people and Indigenous energy and Indigenous presence in a real solid way to the gallery, and that means bringing artists in. But it also means activating the collections that are already there, artists that are already in the collection at U of T, um, like Jeff Thomas, mm. works by Carl Beam, um, Shelley Nero, mm. and actually finding ways to displace some of that settler colonial history that makes that, that has made an absence of indigenous people mm. in that site right there seems to be a push in that direction um, and, and a more openness around bringing the indigenous voice and the indigenous history uh, mm-hmm. back into the mainstream and it, much like this is happening uh, which is great and wonderful of course yeah absolutely i'm really interested in um well the people at u of t were very excited to be able to bring me aboard so that we they can start that process and i'm especially encouraged that um the students that are there are really pushing i think this it's always uh, <laughs> the young people are at the forefront of pushing pushing forward to 
to get this process going to try to um, create more um, a more visible indigenous presence in the university. So whether that's um, creating a garden in in uh, on the space mm. on the campus there or creating art installations, but with native artists. Um, I'm really looking forward to working with a team who is so invested in making making my vision and making this this indigenous future real, uh, mm. making it possible. Mm. You know, as you were talking there, something popped into my mind. Of course, you mentioned a few a few of the artists like uh, Shelly Nero and, and some of the other people that you've mentioned, the artists that have been mm-hmm. around for quite some time and doing yes. some fabulous work, of course. And it's great to always have them bring more stuff in as well as new artists. Uh, mm-hmm. But because there's this sort of a resurgence uh, and, and sort of a, a, a many people will still not know many of these artists, even in some yeah. of their early works. Is there... Uh, is there a, a some way of, of are they always going to be working on new stu- new works or or do sometimes mm-hmm. they recycle some of their works that may not be known as widely as they would like them to be or they should be? Absolutely. Well, I am um, I'm a historical art historian mm. by training. So mm. I when I'm talking about going back and um, showing people some of the earlier works, I mean going all the way back. <laughs> okay. So not only do I want to bring people's attention to established artists, artists mm. who we know and love already, and I mm. want to bring their work forward. Um, I want to talk about the ways that those artists, contemporary artists, those established artists, they're all connecting us to our ancestral artists mm. in a very real way. That I think sometimes there's a real division between contemporary and historical. Mm. So this kind of periodizing of these different um, art movements into a timeline, I really want to get past that and show how the artists today are talking about the artists, you know, they're speaking directly to the work that was being done in the 80s and 90s by mm. those by those artists like Jeff Thomas mm-hmm. and Shelley Nero. And those guys in turn were speaking to the past and the present. They were speaking to their to their um, to their ancestral works. They were speaking to um, their grandfathers and grandmothers in the 20s and 30s when they were when they were um, when art styles were really changing. And they were speaking to before that to some of their more ancestral arts. Mm. I want to bring all of that to everything I do at the museum. Yeah, bringing that whole holistic kind of a, 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 a tone, like you said, it's all tied yeah. in together and, and they're all uh, joined uh, through the artist and through history. Mm-hmm. As you were saying that, I was wondering, because you're going back to look at, at historical artists and, and bring them uh, in and, and ex- express them, is there now an opportunity or is it maybe this is you know maybe it's redundant to say i don't know because i'm not involved in the in the art world like you are um but is there is it an opportunity to look at things differently because of how how things have changed and or say we're in the middle of a pandemic you know and and something and or uh, with all the social uprising and and the cry Mm -hmm. for justice these days you know those kind of things i think this is a real opportunity to be able to bring um bring us back and really call attention to the roots of what indigenous artists and indigenous movements have been engaged in all along. These are activist movements. Mm. These are movements for change and have been Mm. since, well, since ancestral, since our ancestral times. Mm. Um, I really do want to um, speak to indigenous arts in a way that's not, that's doesn't limit us to some sort of like, um, authenticity narrative. I want to talk mm. about how our struggles are combined, are one with the struggles of of um, Black Lives Matter. I mm. want to talk about how settler colonialism um, is in is um, part of our history as well as others, uh, all the other people who have been arriving here on Turtle Island. I want to talk about how all of these are forms of change. These are forms of power for pushing us forward as a, as a, as a society. These are activist movements, I believe, and all the artists have real and powerful things to say. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and in some ways, that's a, a wonderful opportunity to expand on that, especially given uh, light such as the, 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 the coronavirus, you know, mm-hmm. and how that, you know, and I've heard this come up again and again through this uh, COVID-19 is how uh, the resilience of indigenous people. And we, we've been dealing with uh, these kind of things, you know, 
through ever since uh, colonialism. Uh, Absolutely, and, you know, yeah. So, the pandemics yeah. Um, have something or something that actually is very visible in our material culture history, and, and our artists are are what bring us through that, right? So, mm. hundred years ago, it was the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. and it was at the same time it was tuberculosis. It was all these things going through our communities, creativity, and the will to to survive and to make beauty and to imagine new futures and imagine different kinds of beauty. That has always pushed us forward. And if you look, you'll be able to see that in beadwork and regalia, mm. in um, in the weaving that I look at in, in, in particular. You look at the, all the things that we've been creating and all the artworks that we've been that have been made, and they're all about being healthy. They're all about being together, and they're all about finding ways that even while our communities are being are being attacked or being are being um, impacted by things that really are an effect of of um, this moment of globalization and this specific moment in, in um, the history of colonization, mm. these are, we are still finding ways to survive. And so our art is definitely going to start, is going to reflect that. Right. I'm just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as I say, anywhere across the country. And it is, it is a pleasure to have our guest with us uh, on this part of the show. I am speaking with... Uh, Migwans, and she, yeah. they are from uh, the Wikwemekong uh, Reserve in uh, up on Manitoulin Island, one of my favorite places to go when I am able to go there, uh, not Absolutely. like now. But uh, <laughs> they are also uh, have an appointment as the curator uh, of Indigenous Contemporary Art at the University uh, uh, of Toronto, so at the mm -hmm. Art Museum of uh, University of Toronto. So congratulations once again. Miigwech. And we are speaking about art, uh, but it, how interesting it is that it, it re does relate so heavily to uh, the kind of situation we find ourselves in uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic. And um, we hear more and more about um, Indigenous artists, uh, the importance of art in general, of course. But you mentioned something about weaving just a moment ago. You said specifically weaving. So what is weaving for you? So um, I'm working right now um, on completing my dissertation on traditional natural fiber weaving techniques. Natural fiber weaving in the Great Lakes has been is a very long and actually overlooked tradition. Mm. Um, you wouldn't people don't think of us as weavers particularly in the Northeast. They kind of think of us as um, well, we're bead workers, we're quill workers. Mm. Weaving has been um, a very important part of our traditions, and it was in that it was in this moment, specific moment of colonization, when we were when we were put in place and made to settle, um, that they that our lifestyles changed and weaving became less of a focus. Formerly, weaving was the way that our mothers and our foremothers created the world for us, right? That's mm. they we weaving we wove our lodges. So the mm. bulrush mats that were for the floor and the cattail mats that were for the the lodge coverings, those were all made by our mother's hands and as a very and as a way of investing all that energy into holding us. Mm. It became different when we were put in settlements and put in log houses, right? Mm. So I came to weaving because I was working with um, craft workers at the at the Ojibwe, Ojibwe Cultural Foundation. That's where I kind of got my start in the museum world and in the art world. Mm. I was working with the craft workers there and I, I met up with Renee Wasson Dillard and I met up with other ladies working in ash basketry. Mm. Now, the black ash tree, which we use to make black ash baskets and women have used to feed their families and create work, works for us for, for forever. Yeah, black ash tree is threatened with extinction in the next 20 years because of um, because of a destructive species called the emerald ash borer. Mm. Those ladies are looking at literally the death of a tradition. Mm. One lady I was working with, Wasson or Renee Dillard, she says, well, that's not our only weaving technique. That's not our only thread to the earth and to mm. our past. Mm. So she says those practices that we use to um, go out and get black ash trees and to make these things for our, for our people, there are other there are threads to other traditions to older traditions that we can go back to. So she started looking back to bulrush mat weaving, mm. to 
basswood twined bags to all these things that are in museums right now and actually are where we become unfamiliar with them. She wants to get familiar with them again, learn from what those from what those foremothers are trying to teach us and find ways to connect with those plants again. And connecting with those plants means connecting with species that are the other species that are threatened today. It connects us to the bulrush, which is part of our, um, our important part of our wetlands, right? She told me once that the bulrushes are our first water protectors and their condition, trying to take up the toxins from the lakes from us and from the wetlands reflects our conditions. So actually this weaving has brought me to realize how art, how these creative practices of our foremothers and our contemporary makers connect us to our land and to certain places. And that should be the first line of our activism and our that the activism that we express through our art making. Well, that's really fascinating what you you were just saying there, uh, because of a number of things. Um, first of all, Renee Dillard, that name sounds very familiar with to me. I wonder if I've I've spoken with uh, Renee before, but um, I hope you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing, uh, just in terms of, uh, I was wondering if. They, you know, over time, I wonder if there has been other uh, situations where weaving uh, has been threatened with the extinction of of different, you know, kinds of species naturally. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, forced to change to do that. But having said that, when you said bulrushes, I immediately thought of they I think they are being threatened right now, if I'm not mistaken, because of that invasive species, which I think is called the. uh, you can say it. Yeah. Phragmites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those things. Oh, man. Uh, they yeah. I, they look like they're just wiping bulrushes out everywhere. They are. It's actually, that is, um, it's, the discourse on invasive species is very complicated, of course. We've mm. always had, we've always dealt with a very cha- a changing ecology here. It's not like this, there's, um, there's one kind of ecology that has always been the way it is. But um, this I would, I'll call it a destructive species because it is displacing the partners and our um, our non-human partners in the natural world. It's mm. destroying the ways that they support all the life around them. All of the the little mic, the little tiny ecologies that are, live in the water, mm. those are reliant on these kind of on these bulrushes. And even us as Anishinaabe people, right down to our the the flora and our stomachs, we are connected with those ecologies. Mm. Um, so. It really, it is in this in a certain way. It's threatening to us as well, and it's it's um, those relatives we mm. need to pay attention to to their plight. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, the other thing I was wondering about in terms of weaving, is there a difference in the style of weaving uh, in different parts of Southern Ontario? Actually, I found um, so. Part of my work has been to take take an. Um, I take an elder with me and some learners. So I usually it's Wasson and myself and all my brothers and sisters. You guys want to say hi? <laughs> <laughs> They're always with me. So I take them and we go into a museum and we look at some of these ancestral pieces. And we try to figure out, okay, if these ones came from this certain community, is there a specific style? Is Do they do it differently from this community mm. over here? We've gone into dozens of museums all over Canada and the States at this point. Mm. I found that all of these mats, there's a very much the same. Mm. They're all, there's a very strong tradition of Nishnabe and related, related peoples. They all make the same kind of lodge mats for their floors, these bulrush mats. And there's a specific, specific kind of abstraction, a specific kind of imagery that goes on them. Mm. There's that, what you might be familiar with, the, the dual thunderbird and underwater panther imagery mm. that mm. is found sometimes on our, on our medicine bags. Those have their origins, I believe, in weaving traditions, in these geometric traditions that come from um, the duality of weaving and the kind of weaving back and forth between the one side and another. Um, these mats, I find that they have the same techniques and they come from the same kind of um, matrilineal tradition of life supporting arts. And it's the same from, I think, I, as far as I can tell, from the East Coast, from the Mi'kmaq people, right across over west to the Fox and Sock, mm. we have the same kind of mat, we have the same kind of, we come from the same mothering traditions, you know? Mm. Although we have found also, there's ways that these, that these ladies and their families um, did the selvages differently. 
So each family would learn from like who they learned from, they would carry on the selvage. So the mm. selvage is that edge where you tie the mm. ends down. Mm. <laughs> so it's not something you would look at normally. Normally people look at the design in the center. They'll say, there's a thunderbird on that. That's so powerful. I wonder what it means. The meaning uh, I find is when you go and look at the edges, the rate, rate where you look at how it's made and you'll see that you can start to see families. You can start to see networks of uh, ladies who are teaching these making these making patterns and they pass it on the ways they pass it on that carries on in the selvage where you don't really usually look mm. hmm cool yeah that, i'm learning quite a bit about uh, weaving here that's, that's <laughs> well come to one of my classes one of these days i'll teach you more oh yeah tell us some more about the classes you'll be teaching oh yeah so at uh, when i'm when i once i start teaching at uh, at u of t I got a course really till the fall so I can finish this dissertation. And man, I got to finish it. Um, once I start teaching, I'll be teaching Native Art 101. You'll be able to come in here about the indigenous um, arts traditions. And I really want to make it be, again, transhistorical. I want to connect the, the historical, the ancestral with the contemporary. So when I teach, I try to teach um, region by region and try to include examples from the ancestral, sometimes from right from the archeological right up to the present day. Mm. I find that even that when I'm speaking about historical arts, I want to use a contemporary artist who is speaking to those arts in order to bring those forward because mm. those artists, again, those are, our, those are our activists and our leaders and they have important things to say about the past. Mm. So at the same time, I don't really want, I don't really try, want to try to chop up the continent into different pieces but i find it more i find it better to go region by region and try to connect the the far south i want to talk right from the the mayan civilizations right up from to cahokia in the center mm -hmm. in the center of the continent and then up to the inuit people and i'm going to try to i'm going to try to cover all that in one class i will also be teaching uh indigenous contemporary art as a second as a separate class mm -hmm. and so that's where you'll be able to hear more about again um like carl beam Lake Dabosky, mm. um, Shelley Nero, and Jeff Thomas, all mm -hmm. those guys who are working from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. I want to talk about those guys as our forebears in this present moment and our, uh, and really kind of opening the way for us to start speaking in contemporary art spaces, right? Mm. So I'll be teaching that, and I'm hoping to also teach a graduate course on, uh, on the weaving thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. Now, what what do you expect, though, from the fall at this point in time, you know, given the situation? I believe right now, um, when we go back to classes in the fall, and of course, things are still really up in the air, they're going to try this kind of high flex approach where we're teaching in the classroom, but at the same time, we'll be teaching to an online course. So mm. there'll be an option to have a small amount of people in, in, right. in the room. Right. But then I think most of, most of the class will be online. So you have to teach simultaneously. I actually, I'm really excited to, to find ways to, to, uh, I don't know, be more formal about in our approach to mixed reality teaching or being both online and in the mm. real world. Mm. I think it's going to be helpful to our pedagogy. Mm. Right. We're just about out of time. You're, uh, so when you, you finish your dissertation, that is with uh, Columbia University? Yeah, yeah. I went to Columbia University in New York City to do my PhD. Mm. Well, congratulations. And uh, how, when you're, you're, you're finished, uh, I guess this will be all, all done online when you receive this now? Yeah, I guess we'll be doing a, <laughs> a virtual ceremony. I'll receive my virtual PhD. Yeah, I hear you. I, I know my son just graduated himself from uh, from university, and oh. he he just uh, got his uh, his his uh, diploma in the mail, and they're yes. they're going to be having a virtual uh, a virtual um, graduation uh, at the end of the week. So perfect. Congrats to him. Well, thank you, and uh, congratulations to you, and, yeah. and and all the best with yeah. this wonderful, uh, great gig. <laughs> this great gig. It is. It's great. my dream gig. You know, I actually, I applied to do my PhD at U of T. I was, because I want to, I want to be here. I want to be near my traditional territory. Mm. I want to be doing the work mm. that I'm supposed to do right here, right? Mm. They didn't have anyone to supervise me at ah. the time. There wasn't a way for me to stay home and do my work. So mm. I'm really, I'm really blessed and honored that I will be the person now, now that I'm hired here, who will be able to supervise and support people who want to learn about our ancestral arts and allow them to stay home 
stay within our territory to do that work. All right. Miganak Migwans is joining the Art Museum at the University of Toronto as curator and has done so uh, right now. And congratulations to them for their appointment uh, to the curator position as well as uh, some teaching. Uh, And it's been a pleasure to have them with us here on the show today. We'll be right back after this short break with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And we'd like to welcome our next guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have with us Nuria Fregolia. And Fregola? Nuria Fregola. That's right. That's right. Good morning. And uh, welcome to the show. We're so glad you could join us. I'm very happy to be there with you from the distance, from Lima, Peru. Wow, from Lima, Peru. That's beautiful. And, um, it, and, and you know, that ties in perfectly, of course, because what we're talking about is um, at the film, uh, The Song of the Butter- Butterflies. Uh, you're the, uh, the director for this film, and it is beautifully done, I have to tell you. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm happy you've, you've enjoyed it. Well, you know, I enjoyed it on several fronts. Um, I enjoyed it because we we got to see some of Peru, some of Lima, and some of the uh, Amazon, uh, because the the artist we're following uh, takes us uh, to his his uh, uh, traditional homelands and where his family is living, and it was really uh, beautiful to see. I'm very glad um, you've uh, you've been able to follow Rember and his family and feeling you've been there. You know, and, and it was really uh, also wonderful that you took us into the family and into his relationship with uh, a very important uh, family member of his, his grandmother. And, and I, I really, really thought that was a really, really nice uh, a way to draw us in. But, uh, Nuria, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about why and how you came up with this idea for this film. Yes, um, I, I've been all my life obsessed with uh, minority languages and cultures, mm. probably because I've been born in Catalonia. I'm Catalan in mm. Spain, and it's also uh, a very um, a language that it's, it's not at risk of extinction, but it's very... Mm. Um, it's surrounded with the Spanish language. Mm. So I've been always been very sensitive about that. And when 15 years ago, I, I moved to Peru, I'm also Peruvian, mm. and I became obsessed with the diversity of languages and cultures in the Amazonia. Mm. And um, it's something that fascinates me in several fronts. So uh, I started the research to do something that I wanted to have languages and culture portrayed, but uh, not in a, like a sociological or scientific way, but in a way you could really feel the importance of this diversity. And I started meeting people to see if someone wanted to, to join this project. And I remember the first time I, I met Rember, the main character, mm-hmm. he told something that is related about uh, his grandmother. And it impacted me. It was in 2014 when we had a, um, a tea to talk about the possibility of working together, mm. he, he told me that um, his grandmother, Marta, mm-hmm. uh, always t- told him that a good Guitoto is the one who knows his history and also knows how to communicate it. Mm. And this sentence kept like uh, in my mind. Mm-hmm. So it has guided all the process until... We arrived to finish the, the film, and I think in the film um, we've managed together with Rember and with the voiceover of Marta mm-hmm. to to have this spirit of the importance of knowing who you are, where you come from, and telling it to other people. Yeah, and that really came out beautifully, and it really was wonderful, even in his own words about how he spoke about his his grandmother Marta and 
and how he said he's she's there with him every time he picks up a paintbrush, every time he does a, a subject, uh, she's always there. And if and if if he can hear her voice in his head, then he knows it, he's probably doing the right thing. Yes, um, that's something that uh, impacted me because as he he uh, the grandmother uh, lived a life more isolated than Rember. Rember lives between the city, the Lima, and the jungle. Uh, and she's like the voice that like confirms, literally confirms him uh, what's, um, what's real on their origin, origin. And what he told me after we went to La Chorrera, to Colombia together to film, where, we, where the grandmother had to run away, like 100 years ago when she mm. was very, very young, um, is that when they met, he met all the, the other Witotos there, uh, he confirmed that everything that he had received orally from the grandmother mm-hmm. was real and was there. So he also confirmed there that uh, he and his father were doing a good work, spreading the culture through the paintings. Yes, yes, that's right. Now, you also got some, some footage of Marta, uh, was that your footage? Whose footage was that with her, with her son uh, leaving and she's speaking to him? It was Rember's footage. Ah. It was uh, the fa- family footage. There's diff- different uh, sources of footage. Mm-hmm. An important one is fa- the family. Uh, uh, not only, sometimes they record themselves. Now the technology is, it makes it very easy with telephones and uh, simple recorders, but uh, some years ago, like people like me who have worked with them and also gives them a copy of the material. So mm. uh, also they have this beautiful photo of Marta that appears in one moment of the film, a beautiful portrait that is a, from a very good photographer and the family has the rights and the, the material. And others are from other colleagues who also love the Amazonia, other uh, filmmakers. Who have very gen- who have very very generously uh, gave it to to us for the project, and it has not been easy to work with um, a language that in Peru there are almost no speakers. Mm. So um, the translations have be- we've been using the material with approximate translations mm. until the very end, that we had like specific translations mm. really word by word from a Colombian translator. Mm. And it was magic when we we got the final translations. Sometimes they improved <laughs> what we expected to say. <laughs> so it's been very the, the editor and me were very surprised sometimes with the last final translations. And, and you know uh, what's what's wonderful about this film is is how it starts. And I loved actually I love the uh, the the opening sequence. Uh, 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 Nuria, where you use the uh, ac- the actual um, uh, 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 his his uh, a board that he's going to be painting on, you use that to actually superimpose the su- the title and and certain other things onto the uh, onto the screen, and and I thought that was really nice. But when you know, I thought what we were going to see um, was more about an artist's journey, you know, just an artist's journey, and 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 you know, uh, as you say, uh, Rember is his artistry is, is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I, I like it very much too. As um, it's a matter of taste, some people love it and some people doesn't mm. like it that much. Mm. It's normal in, for every artist. Mm. But yeah. um, for me, it's very special and very, it has a lot of personality. Yeah. And also he, he changes his style. Um, so there's a progress. I, I, I'm not an artist. Art specialist, but I became through through these years with Rember, and I, I see his faces. I yeah. I, I tell him yeah. this is from mm, like ten years ago, Rember, when you worked mm. with these colors, mm. and he laughs at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great that you're becoming uh, that familiar with his work. I I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen some of his work before. When I saw you know when you show more of of what he's doing. I went, okay, I'm sure I've seen this guy's work somewhere before. And um, 
as I mentioned off the top, I thought it was going to be a story just about an artist, uh, you know, maybe an artist's struggle or whatever, but it, it quickly uh, turned into something more. And, and as we are talking about this, the Song of the Butterflies is the name of the film, and for those people that are interested, it's part of the Hot Docs uh, online festival, so you can go and see that online with, with Hot Docs, and it's streaming until uh, June 24th. So, um, uh, uh, now... Uh, Nuria, what the other thing I think that was interesting was, as the story developed, and we, we then established the relationship with uh, Rembrandt and his grandmother and his connection to her, but then it becomes even deeper. It, it, it does talk about his, you know, he's one of two families that are, are you know, on the verge of extinction in, in terms of a people, which was really interesting, of course. But you then take it even even further. You, we go back to his his home, his family, and we see where he lives, and we meet his family members, and we see the influence uh, of of his father as an artist on him, and talking to him, and and getting the culture from his father, and and then we get the story, the background story of his people, and and what happened to them, and connection to the rubber trees, and the exploitation uh, of all of that as well. Yes, at the beginning, I was, um, as I also come from activism, uh, the, the, um, the rubber massacre was something that I wanted to put in the center. Mm. But uh, with Rember, uh, with the family, and also with the community in Colombia, I understood, I quickly understood that this was my vision, but the way they lived that is, is as it's portrayed in the film. It's something very harmful. It was a genocide. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah. But the, the important thing is that they are still surviving today. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to put it in like in a first um I don't know how do you say how I can say it in English, like in the front. Mm. It had to be a sort of background sure. because they are pain, but they are also happiness. And I understood it was essential to, to respect, to tell this story with my work in the way uh, together they wanted, they had to feel comfortable with that. So there was a sentence that I was told by one of the wise men in Colombia, you know, when, you, when we went there, we had uh, a lot of negotiations with the leaders, mm. uh, first with me, then with Rembert to accept the, the shooting. Of course, we cannot arrive to a community and, and, and mm -hmm. film. Yeah. So what they told me, in, they are very poetic in the Wichita language. Um, so as you can see with Marta, but what they told me is, we have, we have already buried the basket of sadness. Mm. Now we want to fill the basket of abundance. Mm. So it was quite clear that the story of the horror of the rubber boom had to be there, but it couldn't be like the feeling we, we were left with. It was something that had happened, but they, they keep singing in a way. They keep living. And they did sing, and we'll get to that in a moment. I, I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in uh, in uh, Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and uh, type in uh, 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country 24 hours a day. I'm speaking with Nuria Figola. Torrent. She's the director of uh, The Song of the Butterflies, a film that is streaming with the Hot Docs Film Festival up until June 24th. And it, she's calling from Peru, uh, Luma, Peru. So it's a pleasure to have her join us and to be able to take part in, in Moment of Truth with us. And uh, this beautiful film that she has uh, put together, I encourage everyone to go online to, to see it while they can um, and, and do some research on it. It's a beautiful story about not only an artist and his wonderful work, but about his background, his family, and uh, also the, the, the terrible... Uh, uh, history, uh, as in many uh, communities and people that were colonized, and and what happened to his uh, people, uh, and there is depiction uh, of some sort of this uh, that is, that is in the film, 
from uh, his father's drawings and, and some of the children that he... They, they don't shy away, uh, Nuria, from, from the children wanting to know this history either. He, he talks about this to the, to the kids at one point in the film. Yes, and he does it uh, quite, uh, uh, quite often through like oral storytelling or mm-hmm. through um, like uh, encouraging them to, to paint on that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the themes I, I like the most when, uh, I mean, but because we know like the grandmother guides Rember, but uh, Rember's father guides his, they are their grandchildren. So mm-hmm. this, this um, transmission continues. Yeah. And, and uh, as I said, it was really nice that you took us on this journey, not only of the artist and of that relationship with his grandmother and Marta, but also uh, and how she speaks through him to his art, uh, but also in going back to his his family and then uh, taking it even deeper, as as I mentioned, you do take him on a journey back to uh, Colombia to meet with the, the people where he originally came from. And that's what you were just referring to, I guess, when you said you ha- you can't just show up in a, in a community and start filming. You need to you need to have that uh, 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 be allowed. And and I think that was done. And I was somewhat surprised by uh, the naming ceremony that they allowed you to capture. But I think it was wonderful that they did allow you to do that as well. Yes, I was also surprised. It was. Um one of the surprises we had when we received the translation, mm. because while we were there, it was me, uh, the Nico, the cinematographer, the mm. cameraman, mm. and Juanma, the sound recorder. And it, mm. all, it all was very fast. I mean, mm. it was like two hours we arrived and mm. everything was happy, happening, wow. that he was connecting to, to all the community. And we were filming without knowing exactly what was going to happen and without understanding the, right. the Munuka language. Yes. So we didn't really know what they were telling him. <laughs> uh, for the, the ambient, uh, for the feeling, we, we could guess it was something nice. It mm. was not, uh, it was a good moment, mm. but we really didn't know what was happening. And um, it was a surprise to have this. Uh, and for me, it was very generous from them to to let me to let us film that moment from Rember and the other, the rest of the community. And I'm very um, uh, sad because we wanted to go to La Chorrera. It's not easy to arrive there mm. to show the film, uh, but it, with the pandemic, it's not possible. Mm. We will have to have to do it afterwards mm. because we, uh, as the, we cannot move since March in in, mm-hmm. in Lima, mm-hmm. our plans to 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 have a screening there have been postponed. Mm. And speaking of which, where he is in uh, Lima, uh, it's it's a beautiful uh, sort of um, loft apartment or something that he has where he's doing his work. Then that's one of the first scenes that you see as he opens the window and you look out onto the square. Uh, in in the town, it's a nice it's a nice shot. It was a great place for an artist, I think, to to be located. Um, but uh, yeah. uh, but at one point, if you know what I'm saying, the um, he leaves the building, and you're filming on the street, and there is a line of police officers. Uh, it's kind of looking like they're in riot gear there. Yes, um, it was very good because when we start filming for the for the film, because we have been doing like research shooting. Mm-hmm. He, he, in a moment, he said, I've uh, rented a, a sort of a studio, a workshop, and I will move. Mm-hmm. And he moved and he's still there. Well, now mm-hmm. he's in the jungle, but uh, mm-hmm. when he's in Lima, he's still there. It's mm-hmm. in Plaza San Martin. Plaza San Martin mm-hmm. is like one of the two main squares in the <laughs> old town Lima. Yeah. And where all the demonstrations, uh, everything happens there. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, it was incredible because from his uh, studio window, and it's a place. It's a sort in some way. It's not expensive because not nowadays. It's not like the real city center, the economic center. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, in a way, from that window, you can see Peru, all the people from mm-hmm. Peru, all the diversity, uh, demonstrators, but also there's um, commerce. It's very interesting. I, I love this square. Mm. And one day we were shooting and there was that big demonstration because uh, it was um, 
it had it's not in the film because mm. it's too many yeah. messages but sure. it was about the um, the excarcelation of a former peruvian president mm. who 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 was uh, in jail for human rights violations mm. and the demonstration was against this um, putting him free mm. and at the beginning it was oh no we cannot film anymore because we have the uh, all the mm -hmm. noise from outside mm. and Rembert didn't want to involve in that demonstration so it was not we could not film him like demonstrating because right. it was not his uh, position sure. to, to participate actively yeah. but in a moment we said okay just then as you go to your house just leave the studio and we come with you and it um it became in one of the uh, scenes um that is um photographically more interesting because mm -hmm. it's a one shot mm -hmm. and you can see have the feeling of, of being in one of those demonstrations yeah. where i've been so many times in <laughs> in right. the recent years <laughs> sure and and in some way it allows us to go to the past for the first time mm. because this kind of injustice that it's in peru in the current peru it's something that we have heritage mm. from the past mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's the first time we introduce the element of the rubber exploitation yes. in, in in a very subtle way in that first way yes that we know that there's something not that sweet about yeah. the um, rember past and rember community right now of course the, the the title of the film the song of the butterflies comes actually out of that uh, the exploitation and and the the horrible uh, deaths that uh, took place as part of that uh, that terrible situation that that we we, we hear about and see um, and uh, it refers to when uh, when the when the dead uh, are are I guess burned or from their ashes rise these these butterflies yes it comes from uh, one story that is actually in the film that Rembrandt's father tells to the children of the family and tells them uh, uh, and he tells this and uh, explains that he has been told this story mm. and um, uh, that the souls of the dead people became butterflies. But additionally, um, they, they sing a lot. Grandmother Mother Martha sings at the beginning of the film. Mm. And then when we were in Colombia, in La Chorrera, before filming many scenes, some are in the film, others not, because there were too, too many songs. But uh, they asked me to, to sing mm. and then to do the scene. Mm. So um, I like the combination of those things because in the, in the film there are several songs, mm -hmm. uh, several songs. Some mm -hmm. of them are some kind of improv. Mm -hmm. So they create mm. the songs to tell the story. Others are like... Mm, traditional legends mm -hmm. and and I like the combination of, of those things the title we, we finally decided together with the, the creative team and and we all felt it represented the film and also uh, it was a good uh, how do you say like uh, in English pista pista how do you say when it gives you a hint of what we, you will find in mm, the film? Right, right, it's, right, right. Uh, not to expect something yes. too activist or yeah. something anthropologic. It's something more um, like it has poetry, it has history. So if you don't like these kind of things, just don't go and watch mm. it. <laughs> right. um, we're, we're almost out of time, Maria, but what I wanted to ask you one more thing, and it's not so much about the film, it's about working on the film itself. And that is uh, in the Amazon, uh, Amazonia area and in his, his home where his, his family was living. Uh, it's very uh, thick forest. There's lots of water around. Uh, I could not help but think that there must have been a lot of bugs and insects and, and mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were many mosquitoes, but there were something... Uh, even more uh, bothering mm. that happens in the jungle is that during the elect the power mm, schedule that normally it's from 6 p.m. Mm. to 9 p.m. 
and then also from midday to 1 p.m. and the whole weekend, mm. as we, there's power, mm -hmm. everyone in, a, in their houses mm. puts music and um, religious services and mm. television to a very high volume. Oh. So it was even worse for <laughs> filming than the mosquitoes. We've been there three times in three different trips. And the second and the third trip, we already knew that the, the shooting schedule right. possible. But at, in the first uh, shooting um, period, I was desperate because mm. I wasn't able to film right. during many uh, hours and not able to film with sound the whole weekend. Interesting. That's very. That's thank you for that little bit. Uh, listen, it's been it's been a very great pleasure to speak with you and and to to see the film. And I, I thank you so much for bringing this to life and and sharing his story and their story. And and I hope that uh, I wish you all the best with this film and and your future projects. And and uh, once again, if people are interested, the song it's called the Song of the Butterflies documentary. And it is uh, streaming on Hot Docs until June 24th, so you can go and see it. And uh, listen, don't stop there. You know, check it out online, and and I'm sure there might be other ways that you can access this film and, and get uh, get hold of it for your viewing pleasure. And it it is it is beautifully done. So uh, thank you to director Nuria Frigola Torrent for not only the film but for joining us here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Thank you, uh, David. The pleasure is mine. And I'm very happy to, to bring this story to Canada. I hope you, you can enjoy it and you can follow the film in social media to see other mm. screening opportunities. All right. Sounds great. Uh, uh, thank you very much once again uh, for... Uh, how do you say thank you? Uh, muchas gracias. Muchas gracias, of course. So, uh, <laughs> muchas gracias for, for uh, doing this and taking time to join us here on, on the show. Thank you. Okay, you take care. Nuria Fergola Torrent is the director of the Song of the Butterflies, and you can check that out, as I said, uh, until June 24th, uh, streaming with Hot Docs Online Festival. And that's our show today on Moment of Truth. We want to thank you, our listeners, for also tuning in and being a part of our, our show here at Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.